0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, morning. glad you all are here this morning, that was a beautiful rendition of joy to the world, that's hard to follow up right there, that is hard to follow up, well, can you believe it's the the final Sunday of 2019, wow, final Sunday of 2019, I'm always amazed at how fast the years go. (laughs) <laughs> they really go, they go fast. Uh, I sound like I'm 85, right? How fast the years go. <laughs> but uh, certainly good to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be tackling the final letter within our Dear Church series. If you, you guys have been with, been, with me, been with us for a while, and every time I preach, uh, the goal has been to work systematically through the, the seven letters, and uh, it's taken us a little more than a year. <laughs> the longest series ever. <laughs> but it's taken us a little more than a year. And today, again, we're going to tackle the final letter. So far, we've we've looked at the unique circumstances of, of each letter, of each church specifically. And uh, what's kind of neat about each church is that Jesus is very... Uh, He's in context as he's speaking to the circumstances that the churches are facing. We saw in Ephesus, this is a church that is zealous for theological purity. But what's happened within Ephesus is that they've become cold and indifferent to one another. And we've seen in Smyrna, they're impoverished and they're a persecuted church. But Jesus is telling them to stand firm. But then in Pergamum, this is a church that's full of love and compassion. But what, what they're in danger of is theological and moral, moral, moral compromise. That's what that church is in danger of. And then in Thyatira, just moving through what, where we've gone, Thyatira is the epitome. They're the, the epitome of, of growth and development. But they're overly tolerant of false teaching. And then there's Sardis, Sardis. They're known throughout the world for their life and their love, but spiritual decay is rampant. And then we have Philadelphia, small and seemingly insignificant, but diligent and faithful in the face of a hostile world. And today, again, we're going to spend our morning working through the letter to the church at Laodicea. But before we begin, let's begin with a word of prayer great God we come to you and um, we're grateful for your love and grace and the mercy that you've shown us through the Lord Jesus Christ would you be with us during this time to hear from you give us ears to hear and eyes to see where we need to be built up father might you build, build us up this morning God I pray that Our time, uh, under the preaching of your word, I pray, God, that our time this morning would would honor you. Help us to be edified through this this, this process. Help us to to, to think right thoughts about you. Help us to heed and hear what you are saying to your church this morning. I pray that in your precious name, your mighty name. Amen. You know, I, I... I grew up in the, the, the 90s, I'm an, old, I'm an old millennial and uh, there was a hip-hop artist that was popular in the mid-90s and uh, he put out a song called More Money, More Problems. Some of you, <laughs> you know exactly who I'm talking about, others you're scratching your head, you can just talk with me after the service, I can tell you who the guy was. Uh, but, but what's interesting about this song is that this artist gives a critique of wealth, the accumulation of wealth and the chorus goes this way he says i don't know what they want from me but the more money we come around the more problems we see <laughs> that's quite the epiphany there it's quite the revelation quite the revelation what what he's arrived at and what he understands is that wealth doesn't eliminate problems money doesn't eliminate problems. And I believe that within our text today, we're going to see that this this notion, this sentiment of wealth not eliminating problems, it holds true for the church in Laodicea. This church is, again, situated in a city that is the wealthiest of the seven cities, Uh, the wealthiest. they're, they're known for their banking center, their linen and wool industry, their medical school. They, they've got an, an, an economy that's booming. Booming means that's prospering. <laughs> it's prospering. It's booming. And what's interesting is that the church in Laodicea, uh, they, they've achieved status, they have a, they've amassed wealth, they're an affluent church. They're probably the type of church that could host one of Kanye West's Sunday services. Right? <laughs> Some of you got that. And like, like, like the prosperity of the city, they too consider themselves rich, prosperous, and in need of nothing. But their problem is that they don't realize that they're as spiritually poor as they are materially rich. And in their prosperity, in their social mobility, in their ability to achieve the Laodicean dream, their desire to pursue and strive after God has waned to the point of non-existence. Again, their desire to pursue God, to strive after him, it has waned to the point of non-existence. And we hear the words of, of Jesus you turn with me to chapter 3, look at verse 14. These are the words of the Amen. The words of Him who is faithful and He's the true witness. The words of Him who is the beginning of God's creation. He sees what this church is blind to, He sees what they are blind to. And He gives an assessment. That is, that is true and trustworthy, that's binding and valid. And, and, and this, is a, this is an assessment, a critique of this church that I, I think we would do well to listen to. Today what I want to do is look at the, uh, the characteristics of a church that fails to strive after God. Uh, but also, I want to consider the, the counsel that Jesus gives to such a church. And then lastly, I want to consider the promise that's in bed within this text for those who persevere. So there's characteristics of a church that's failing to strive after God, the counsel that he has for such a church, but also the promise for those who persevere. And when we look at um, verses 15 through 17, this section pretty much has, it has two characteristics that are laid out for us. Uh, But we see the first characteristics and characteristic in verses 15 through 16. It reads, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm and you're neither cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. We have this, the first characteristic of, of a church that is failing to strive after God we see that Laodicea, the church at Laodicea, has become spiritually lukewarm. And, you know, when we think about their spiritual lukewarmness, what should jump off of the page is the fact that, you know, their spiritual state is spiritually lukewarm. But what does Jesus say he's going to do because of their spiritual state? He's going to vomit them out of his mouth. That spiritual state is vomit-inducing the question that we need to ask ourselves is, well, what, what does Jesus mean by lukewarm? What does he mean by that? And I think it's easy to read over this passage and conclude that what Jesus is saying to them in relation to their spiritual state of being neither hot or cold is that what he desires is some type of passion and intensity of being either for him or against him. Just, just by by show of hands, who, who, who's heard that interpretation before, by show of hands? Yeah, it's a very popular one. It's a, it's a very popular interpretation, but it's not accurate. <laughs> it's not. Because when we think about that interpretation and its inadequacy, what it's doing is positive, positively uh, promoting being against Jesus as something that's good. Right, right, you're not hot, you're not passionate for me, you're not cold, you're not against me, but you're lukewarm, that doesn't really make sense. And I think what's helpful for us is that in order for us to grasp what Jesus is communicating here, we've got to consider the, the, the geographical and historical backdrop of Laodicea, because there's an object lesson that he's employing Laodicea, Laodicea is a city that has two sister cities. One of their sister cities is Colossae. And Colasse is roughly six miles uh, to the north of them. Colossae is, is known for their, their cold water. And it's refreshing. But then Laodicea has a second sister city, Hierapolis. Hierapolis is roughly 11 miles away from Laodicea and it's known for its hot springs, and their hot springs have medicinal purposes. But Laodicea is also known as a city that doesn't have its own water supply. They've gotta rely on a neighboring city that's roughly six miles south south of them for water. So they have this aqueduct system that they use to, to bring water in. And because of the distance that the water had to travel, the water would arrive in Laodicea, but it wasn't fit for drinking. It was nasty. (laughs) Nasty. (laughs) It was not fit for anything. And the object lesson that Jesus is using, he's saying, like the historical reality of the city and its water supply, the church is distant from her source. Let me spin that again. Like the historical reality of the city and its water supply, that church has become distant from her source. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, you know, there are ways in which this church ought to be a cool drink of water and bring refreshment for the spiritually weary. But also, this church ought to be a place of healing for the spiritually sick. And the sad reality is that this church has become lukewarm because she's far removed from her source. You guys tracking with me? That's the object lesson. She's far removed from the source. And as a result of of complacency towards striving after God, she's nothing but a bitter and disgusting taste in the mouth of our Lord. He spews her out. I've got a dear friend in Virginia. His name is Colby Garman. He pastors at uh, Pillar Church in Dumfries. He puts it this way. He says that this is a warning against the gradual apathy that is natural to believers in the body of Christ. When our fervor and zeal for God wanes, we become little more than just a normal gathering of people. That's pretty heavy there. Because as the body, we're much more than that, not just a normal gathering of people. Laodicea is spiritually lukewarm, but that's not all. Let's look at the second characteristic. That's in verse 17, which reads For you say that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We see the, the, the second characteristic that's being brought, brought out here. One, this church is lukewarm. But the second characteristic is that they've become self-reliant. They've become self-reliant. And we see that in the term, I need nothing. That's what they've said. I need nothing. Nothing. Their self-reliance is preventing them from seeing who they are and what they are. And the text says that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But I I believe what you and I need to realize is that self-reliance can be the death knell of a church. And here's why I say that. Because at the heart of it is prideful, self-sufficient attitude that says, I don't need God. That's what's at the heart of that. But along with that it doesn't stop there. I don't just I don't I don't just not need God, but I don't need his people. I don't need him and I don't want to be in the fellowship with his folk. And I believe that where self-reliance exists, self-deception follows. That's what's tethered to it. Self-deception what you and I need to remember is that the challenges that this church is facing in their waning fervor for God, they're really, they, these really serve as examples of ways that our hearts can orient themselves. So what I don't want to do is, as I'm preaching through this text, is we don't want to look at Laodicea and go, oh, they just got it wrong. I would never do that. Stop lying. <laughs> Be honest, all right? Sometimes that's us. I believe the, 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 the hymn writer, Robert Robinson, he hits it right on the nail in his great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to read through the third stanza. He goes on to say, "O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Here's the next line. Prone to, you say... Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Here's another line: prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He hits it right on the nail. That the church is characterized by 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 spiritual lukewarmness and self-reliance. But let's 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 see what what type of counsel Jesus has for a church such as this, with, with, that's, that's waning in their fervor for God. You see, um, the council comes in verses 18 through 20, and it's actually in two parts. Uh, the first part is in verse 18, which reads, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. In white garments, so that you may, be cloth- you may clothe yourselves. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. First part of the council is to look to Jesus. That's the first part of the council. Look to Jesus. And where, 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 where they've become self-reliant, what they've found security in, what they deem as having lasting value, they're to trade these things for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And they're to do this by forsaking their former suppliers and buying figuratively, buying from Jesus. And they're to do this knowing and understanding that, that Jesus would have it, that Jesus. Has, a, has the ability to supply them with what they truly need. And his ability to do that is inexhaustible. It is inexhaustible. And this, my friend, I believe is counsel that you and I need to hear this morning. But consider what they're in need of as the, as the text kind of brings it out. They, they have unprecedented wealth, but they're spiritually poverty-stricken. And they're in need of buying gold refined by fire. This is also a church that is clothed in the finest and most expensive cashmere black wool, right? There's no cashmere black, black wool, that's not it. But they're, 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 they're clothed in the most expensive black wool, but they're spiritually naked before God, and they're needing to buy white garments to cover their nakedness. And even though they're known for their medical school and their famous eye salve, a little historical um, item there. They're, they're spiritually blind and needing to be anointed with God's eye salve and see themselves as they really are. That's what they need to purchase. And again, only Jesus can supply this church with what they truly need. And they're counseled to look to him. But there's a second part to the counsel. The second part is in verses 19 and 20, which reads, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and a knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. First part of the counsel, again, is to look to Jesus. The second part is to be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. What's so interesting about the, 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 the counsel that Jesus gives is that this, this rebuke, it, because it is a rebuke, it's, this rebuke is, is, is something that we, we ought to embrace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, speak to the rebuke, the discipline of the Lord. I'm going to just kind of read through some of Hebrews 12. So bear with me. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He's treating you as family. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We're going to end here. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Consider what it's connected to. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The church needs to embrace the rebuke. Embrace that rebuke. Jesus cares for his people. And like a father to his son, he cares for them enough to rebuke them cares enough to rebuke them. But in the rebuke, what I don't want to miss is is Jesus's disposition to to this church that is lukewarm, self-reliant, and spiritually blind. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and I knock. Notice what he didn't say. I'm going to kick that door in. (laughs) He didn't say that. But he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. It's a patient disposition. It's a merciful disposi- disposition. It's a, it's a gracious disposition that he has toward this church. And when we think about the, the, the counsel to be zealous and repent, what, 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 is, what does that look like and what, what follows upon it? I think verse 20 is a description of what repentance is, and what follows upon that repentance. Repentance, in this context, it's it's a restoration of intimate communion between Jesus and his people, his sheep, the believer. And with with all that's following upon it, he's inviting us to reestablish a deep fellowship with himself. Repentance certainly, making that one eighty turn. But again, it's about restoring intimate communion between Jesus and us. The entirety of this council, when we think about it, the entirety of this council—it's coming from certainly. He's the faithful and true witness, and but it abounds with—it's—it's it's, it's abounding with love and patience toward a wayward bride. And the counsel in and of itself, the rebuke in and of itself, it really serves as a means of grace for us. This is a means of grace. Jesus is standing at the door knocking. He's one waiting for his people to repent and renew their fellowship with him. This is really an appeal to, for, for, for those that are within this church, the church at Laodicea, who've become spiritually lukewarm who are self-reliant to forsake their spiritual half-heartedness. That's what the appeal is about. Forsake your spiritual half-heartedness. I believe this is counsel that we need to hear and heed as well. Let's move to the promise. The promise is in verse 20 because we've considered the characteristics of a church that's failing to strive after God, and we've looked at the counsel that Jesus gives such a church Let's look at the promise that Jesus has for those who persevere. And again, verse 20 reads, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Think about that. The one who conquers, he's going to sit with me. He's going to be with me. He's going to reign and rule with me on my throne. But then he goes on to say, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And uh, this, this, this promise that we have for those who persevere is, to, is the right to rule and reign with Jesus. That's the promise. We will rule and reign with Jesus if we persevere. It's a future promise, but it has right now implications Future promise, right now implications. Before we get to the right now implications, consider, and I don't want to miss this, as we consider the gravity of this statement. Consider what, what, what the promise to reign and rule uh, with Christ, consider the one in which it's built on. It's built on the sufficiency of Jesus. He's the one who... Who makes the promise? This promise is valid. This promise will happen because Jesus has conquered. We conquer in light of what where Jesus has conquered, right? And I want to just kind of kind of build this out a little bit. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus has conquered, this changes everything. Romans 8 says that. Think about it. Romans 8 says that. Because of what Jesus has come, there's no more condemnation. Because of what Jesus has done, we are more than you say, whoa. Whoa. I want to hear you say this. Because of what Jesus has come, done, there's no more condemnation. Because of what Jesus has done, we are more than we're, we're working on our, 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 uh, our Baptist talk here. I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not Baptists. We're Bible church, right? We're working on it. But for the, La- for the Laodiceans and for us, the sufficiency of Jesus changes everything. The sufficiency of Christ changes everything. And here are the right now implications that, that we need to chew on and digest when we consider this marvelous truth. It changes our affections, it changes our attitudes, it changes our ambitions our ambitions. I'll say that again. Gonna let it spin. It changes our affections, our attitudes, and our ambitions. Growing up, my father was a pastor, and I, I remember. Uh, some of the older ladies of the church, when they would get up and testify in uh, and, and, and light of the sufficiency of Jesus, they would get up and say, you know, as I look back over my life and I think things over, I can truly say that my affections and my attitude and my ambitions have changed. They've changed, right? Right? They're not what they're not. They're not. They're not what they what they what they ought to be. But they're not what they used to be. And I and, and I believe when we think about the sufficiency of Jesus and the way that it changes us, these right now implications, dear friend, it changes affections, attitudes, and ambitions. It does that for us. When we look at uh, verse 20, 21, twenty I mean, one, I'm sorry, verse twenty two, and we're going to come to a close here. We look at verse 22. Um, we, we, we have a, a familiar exhortation in verse 22. And this familiar exhortation says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right? we, all, we all have ears in here. Now, the degree, of which, the, the, the degree by which our ears are operating, that's a whole other story, right? But we all have ears. But the scripture says, he who has an ear, hear what the spirit is saying to the church. When we arrive at this familiar exhortation, it's given seven times throughout the seven letters. And I believe that this, this, this exhortation is not just exclusive to the seven churches. It's not just exclusive to the seven churches. This exhortation is for us as well. We have ears. We need to hear. And my prayer this morning is that we would hear what our Lord has said to his church and where we're, where we're prone to rationalize lukewarmness and, but also in, 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 where we're prone to be distant from God where we're prone to be self-reliant and thinking that we don't need God, when we, where we fail to bring healing to the spiritually sick and refreshment to the spiritually thirsty, my prayer is that we would be zealous and repent and that we would look to Christ. We would see his sufficiency. We would see his mercy. We would see his grace because he stands at the door, even now and he's knocking. Will you let him in? Again, he is standing at the door, and he is knocking. And he's doing that to dine in fellowship with his people. Will you let him in? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we are just grateful for just the, the, the opportunity to hear your truth to hear what you have to say to the, to the church. And uh, when we consider the situation that's happening in Laodicea, the fact that they've become spiritually lukewarm, the fact that they've become self-reliant, the fact that they've, they, they're trusting in things that are temporary. They're spiritually blind. They've become jaded. God, I just pray that if we're landing there, that you would expose that in our own hearts. I pray, God, that where, where, where we're prone to wander, God, might you, might you deal with that with us, where we are prone to look to other things and leave the God we love. Might you, might you come and dine and fellowship with us in those areas, Might you do it for your glory. Father, we look to you. We look to you because where else are we going to look? You are the great one. You are the glorious one. And you're all that we need. I pray for the remainder of our time, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.